Thank you very much, Helen. Sorry about that little um, blip there with feedback from the uh, speaker. The irony is I already had my uh, my microphone switched on, but I could hear the snare drum humming away in the corner. I thought, that's a distraction. I'll discreetly switch that off to avoid any distraction. Well, there you go. Such is the, uh, the irony there. But still, the Arctic polar bear feeds almost entirely on seals. You may well know that. To enjoy such a meal, he sometimes then resorts to cunning. If the hole in the ice through which the seal gets his food is not too far from the edge of the water, the polar bear will then sometimes take a deep breath, slip underwater, slip to the seal's fishing hole. He will then imitate a fish scratching lightly on the underside of the ice. When the seal then hears that sound, very often he'll dive in thinking he's got a quick supper only to find himself caught and actually becoming a supper himself. Now spiritually speaking, that's maybe a picture of how you and I can quite quickly get caught off guard and enticed by the enemy. He uses deception to gain a foothold. When we succumb to the temptation, he then catches us in his trap. And in a particular way that we'll see this morning, that is largely what this passage is to do with when we think of being on our guard, as we've got as our theme uh, for this morning. Uh, Long words in that passage from Joshua chapter 9. Helen emailed me back, said, thanks ever so much for the choice of reading that's come my way. But as I said to her, I didn't write it. Uh, So uh, there we go. Uh, But bless you, Helen, for that. Do appreciate it. Long history about what went on. And this is a part of a series that we're going through the book of Joshua. So if you've just come in for this morning, do make sure you catch up uh, online to see where this fits. But as well as the history, then we're not here to actually retell history so much as believing this is God's living word. So what is it, God, you're going to say to us as your people through that particular passage? When we are sailing along nicely, That can be the time when maybe we are caught letting our guard down. We feel maybe we're doing okay. That's when the enemy can often strike. Success can leave us vulnerable to pride and self-sufficiency. Israel, God's people back then, like the church is seen as God's people today, they face the same danger. They won tremendous victory, one amongst others, and you can read about that in previous chapters. After this, Joshua then leads them on this amazing spiritual retreat. And if you've been on one of those, or you've been to Lee Abbey, or you've been to Spring Harvest, or New Wine, or whatever it may well be, you will know something of that high that that can give you. Surely they were now to face whatever came their way. Well, let's uh, find out. After Israel's victories at Jericho, Ai and Bethel, the Canaanites responded in two different ways. Firstly, five of of the nations actually formed an alliance together to launch a direct attack on Israel. That was big war. That was very visible, very obvious. But secondly, one nation, the Gibeonites, used a deceptive approach with Israel, seeking a peaceful means to actually get under the radar. Whilst his motive remains the same, the enemy does not always work in the same way. He can respond differently 
and launch more than one attack at a time. Good soldiers keep alert to both forms of attack. The attack formed by that large confederation is recorded in chapter 10, and we'll be exploring that next week when Jack comes to speak. Whilst chapter 9 is what we're going to be thinking about this morning, the subtlety with which the enemy catches us off guard. How should we respond as and when that happens? Maybe when we fail, when we earn, when we go wrong. But what about preventative? Because that's obviously even better. Firstly, those first couple of verses we can see in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that we're to expect opposition if God is at work. There was a decision to make war against Joshua and God's people. Well, people don't like Christians, they don't like churches, or when God is visibly on the move. One commentator said this, The more boldly the Christian faith advances, the more vocal and violent opposition will become. If you speak to people around the globe where they've experienced a great work of God, that has very often gone hand in hand, or probably almost always gone hand in hand with then a reaction that's been pretty volatile from the enemy. We know something here of what it's like uh, to not be liked as a church. Even before we came here to Poundbury a year ago, we heard comments from different sources that we were a cult, that we were anti-alcohol, that we were homophobic, and word goes round. And I had to make a response on behalf of ourselves as a church very often uh, to those kind of accusations. Now, we shouldn't have been surprised at that kind of stuff and some other stuff that was uh, going round about us, that sense of not good stuff that was hitting us even before we arrived. But it's not easy, is it, to know how best we ought to respond When such things occur, when we face challenge, when we face that attack of the enemy and whatever guise that takes, it's not always easy to see how the enemy is going to operate. Overt war was easier to see and we'll be looking at that next week. But Satan is subtle and deceptive. And we read, and when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and Ai, one translation says, they did work craftily. Just think about that word. That reminds me straight away we go back to Genesis. Way back that first book in the Bible. Satan is referred to there as being crafty or subtle. Chapter 3 verse 1. He still uses that approach. I don't need to tell you that do I? Because I suspect that we have all been duped by his subtlety more than once. Let's not kid ourselves. Well what about here? How did the Gibeonites go about doing this? Firstly, they spoke lies. Secondly, they spoke flattery. Thirdly, they manipulated the evidence. Well, don't we see that duplicated over and over? They were caught, then Joshua and the other leaders, off guard, and they fell for their story, hook, line, and sinker. And that's what the chapter unveils. They claimed to have come from a far country. Lies, they hadn't. They stuck to their story. When they were questioned. It's often been said that if you tell a lie often enough, well, people will believe it. And that's what happened here. They claim to have come uh, because of the great name of the Lord their God. But that wasn't the reason that they come at all. More lies. They referred to themselves as Israel's servants and acted humbly. This was all flattery to Joshua and others. We like people to think that we're great, don't we? So that we feel that kind of sense of being puffed up. Oh, wow, I'm light. That's really good. 
We like people to think that we're great. And of course that kind of thing can happen in churches too. I like to feel encouraged like anybody else does. But if that appears out of place or a bit over the top, then I'm very wary or cautious. Why? Two reasons. Because if that's from someone outside the church, I've discovered that very often that can be somebody who's seeking to link in with us, but pretty quickly to have a platform. And they'll puff me up as seeing me as a means to that. Or maybe somebody on the inside of the church. Well, that can from time to time occur because someone wants a specific role or a specific measure of significance within the church. So if I big Roger up or the other leaders, they will like me and they will then ask me to. And then I will. You can see how subtle. And that's actually what Joshua and the other leaders felt for then. Instead of seeking God, God's people simply looked at the physical evidence. What was the physical evidence? Old clothes? That would suggest they'd been on for ages, coming for a long way. Mouldy old dough? That's a cue for a song. Anybody remember the song? Well, just in case you do, you don't, we're going to go back now to 1972. This is Lieutenant Pigeon. Three words in the song here. See if you can listen to them. It's going to repeat and it's going to be your turn to join in. Okay, you ready for this? Are you ready? Wonderful. Give yourselves a round of applause. That was fantastic. Oh, better stop that. Better stop that. When you think of that trivial distraction, I want you to think of the physical stuff that maybe we might go on in terms of what we see and then get sucked into basing a decision on that just because it's before our very eyes. Here, we see the danger of sight alone versus faith and fact. Joshua, this great leader, the other leaders around that had not that long ago been flat on their faces in in terms of their own wanting to then get it right before God because they previously got it wrong. And they've made the same mistake again. We can see a gifted person, maybe, or someone appearing to say all the right things. We think, wow, they'd be great at. And then if we're not too careful, we base a decision on just that which we've seen. And then somebody, maybe a wrong person, as a result of our own impulsivity, is then put in a wrong place or given a wrong responsibility. What did we ought to do? What did we all ought to do? When we're stuck, when we don't know what to do, we should seek God, when we don't know what to do. We get that from verse 14. If you see uh, chapter 9 and verse 14. That wasn't what I was thinking of verse 14 was, but I had the wrong chapter. The men of Israel sampled their provisions. So they tasted the mouldy old dough. So all it was was mouldy old dough. So that, because of what they saw, seem to prove, oh, we can, we can actually trust their story and everything they've said. But the verse carries on, but they did not inquire of the Lord. 
In all of this, they didn't consider it necessary to consult God. They believed they were at eight. They had all the physical evidence before, and that was all they needed, surely. And a quick reaction, impulsive decision as a result. How foolish. Joshua had been Moses' aid when the Lord implemented the Urim and Thummim for seeking his guidance. Joshua should have learned way back then. When there's a decision to be made, the first thing you do is inquire of the Lord. Regardless of what you feel you see or don't see. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but rather fear the Lord and depart from evil. Verses maybe that some of you know so well. It's not so easy to always put it into practice though, is it? Maybe it's a good verse to write down and put up on our fridges. So the first thing we do, first thing that you seek to do, with maybe a decision that you've got to make this week, is we go to God first. During the Civil War, when the fate of the nation hung in the balance, Abraham Lincoln confessed to a trusted friend that he was often driven to his knees to pray because he had nowhere else to go. What a great thing for ourselves as a Christian group people. Whatever it is, we have a God to go to, always. I don't know, eh? people that say they're atheists cope. We're nowhere else to go. It's all down to them. I just don't know how people do it. I respect their faith in there being nothing and no one. I'd much rather know that there's someone there that I can go to when I get stuck. Which thankfully is only on a daily basis. (laughs) Can you identify with that? Stuff of yesterday, stuff of the day before that. That should have been what Joshua did. Like Abraham Lincoln. Falling to his knees. Should have been what we do when we get sucked in. Believe lies, believe the praise and base decisions solely on what we see before us. Or on how people might sound to us. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says this. There is a way which seems right unto a man or a woman, but its end is the way of death. How quickly... They forgot that defeat of AI and how that had come about. If you've been here week by week, it may well be that you're thinking, hang on, here we go again. There's this cyclical pattern. We've heard this before. God blesses stuff and then all of a sudden things go pear-shaped, things go wrong. They don't then inquire of God and things go wrong. And then they get on their knees again, they say sorry and then God blesses and, and here we go, round and round in circles. And that seems to ring a bell. Does it ring a bell with you? I wonder what comes to mind when we think of that cyclical pattern. I'll tell you what comes to my mind. A mirror. Because I see myself in that. I know what I want to do, I want to get it right, but that isn't always what occurs. And then it's hands and knees, all the equivalent. And we seek to get right with God, and God loves us so much, and he dusts us down, forgives us, says, right, now you know the right thing to do. Yes, I'm going to forever be... And all's fine for maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a year or whatever. And then what happens? We get it wrong again. And don't do that which we know we ought to do. Stop. Seek first God's kingdom. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. What's the decision that you're facing this week or this month? Big decision or little decision? We'll all have them. Seek first the kingdom of God 
And then Jesus continues in all this other stuff that you're so stressed about. All of what you need is going to be added unto you. But seek first my kingdom. Why not build in arrow prayers when we're stuck? There's a scriptural precedent for that too. Each time we need to make a key decision. Let's seek God's direction. Unfortunately here we see from the passage that not only did they make a wrong decision as leaders... But they then bound that by means of an oath. That vow before God was then irreversible. They made a wrong decision, but it was binding and they had to stick by it. Oh dear. God takes vows seriously. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 4 to 6. Have a read. Decisions made in haste are very rarely good, helpful, positive, accurate decisions. Some of us will know that to our peril, I'm sure. It's far wiser to check things out thoroughly, to pray first, to seek counsel, to bank stuff off of a trusted friend before entering into agreements, especially with any person or people group who believes completely the opposite, as you do. Because ethically, there's going to come a time where there's going to be a conflict of interest at the very least. There are far too many people that have proven that to be true. What was the response of the people of God? Well, they were far from happy with what the leaders had done. Perhaps they remembered God's command not to make treaties with the people of other lands. God gave his people specific commands regarding making peace treaties with other nations. They weren't to make covenants with the people of Canaan in case they slipped into idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2. Joshua would have known that. All the other leaders would have known that. What did they do? Exactly that. And we're probably hearing that thinking, how could they be so foolish to do something that was exactly the opposite of God's word, which is very often what I do, if we're honest. And this was the mistake that they made. What would Joshua do? Well, Gibeon had deceived them, but Israel had made that binding covenant, and now the people were angry. We read in God's word, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Oh dear. Mm. Joshua reflected. When things go wrong, we need to think about how we react. Let's just press the pause button when those things occur. Verses 18 and 19, we see that our response ought to be to deal with conflict in a godly way. Deal with conflict in a godly way. Come across any conflict? Anybody? I have no idea why there's not every single hand coming up at all. If you have not put your hand up, you've either not heard me, not understood the question, or been living on planet Zog for the rest of your life. We've all experienced conflict to a greater or lesser degree. But the context for this passage is leaders. Uh, so I'm going to pick uh, on them. Uh, so Paul, you're sat at the back, so you're kind of uh, hidden. Paul is one of the elders of the church. Would you like to stand, Paul? Let's all look at him. 
David is another of the elders, a lot easier to actually uh, look at David. And uh, Chris deliberately isn't here this morning. He got so uh, fearful of this being made an example. He's not here. No, Chris couldn't make it today. Okay, now, uh, I'm also one of, of the elders. And now one of the things that we can be very thankful for, for as a church is that as elders, we are all completely perfect and have never made any mistakes. Yes, please sit down, David and Paul. Now, it's interesting the response there that you made of complete hilarity. Thanks for the confidence that you have uh, for us. Of course, the reality is that leaders are human. Mistakes are going to be made. Please don't lose it with us when merely we demonstrate that we are human. Because we do make mistakes. Sometimes people walk in front of the uh, speakers with their microphone on and there's this awful distraction. Sometimes the pastor does send out a letter via Liz about a date of a membership meeting and he gets it wrong so that poor Liz has to redo the whole thing because of my mistake. And that's just two that's come to mind in the last 24 hours. I won't tell you some of the more sinister ones. You get the point. We are indeed human. We make mistakes. But each of us have a responsibility as being God's people to respond in a right way when mistakes or failures occur. Grumbling is what occurred here. Is there any biblical precedent for grumbling? No. In actual fact, the New Testament says, don't grumble. Shall I tell you what that means? After my three years at Bible college, I can tell you. Don't grumble. Interesting how sometimes as being a part of God's people, we can grumble. Give me a verse for that if you think you're justified. Uh Uh-uh. It's right that we deal with wrong. It's right that we deal with conflict. It's right that we share how we feel. But not to grumble. What about gossip? No, no place for that. What about being judgmental? No, no place for that. What about making wrong assumptions? No. Neither is it right getting someone else to do our own dirty work. So we'll get them to pass a message on of what we are not happy with when scripture teaches that we ought to go to a person if we are not completely happy over something Neither is it right to overemphasize our own point and communicating it as if it's true when we're really just trying to seek our own allegiance and build up weight for our own viewpoint. There should be mutual respect when things go wrong, should there not? Because at the end of the day, we are all on the same side. Why do the enemies work for him? It's hard enough. To be together and come against what he's trying to seek to do, to destroy, divide and destruct, is it not? So do please pray for us as elders to get it right and forgive us when we get it wrong. Not if, it's when. Because we do, we have done and we will do. Pray for the deacons too. Pray for the trustees as well. Tough job they've got. All this legal stuff. Policies that have got to be written. Incredibly boring very important that we get it right and we're not always going to do that support us when we try to move on again but do encourage us as well if from every now and then we get something right 
Maybe, just maybe, Joshua and the other leaders would have thought, if only we had first sought the Lord. That's a word in season for us, each individually as well as each group that meets as a part of this church, is it not? But before we feel a bit woe with me about maybe where we may well have heard, there is good news. There is always good, good news when we come to God's, uh, God's word. And this isn't immediately obvious, but it is right here if you understand the context of what's going on here. And this is the final point. Remember that God can turn things around. That is really good news, is it not? Just think about part of the testimony of Ashika. There is her father who is dying. And yet, before he dies, he receives a vision of Jesus and gives his life to Jesus Christ. And his eternal destiny is changed. Not through his own good works, but because he had faith in who Jesus was. And so did that impact Ashika. That she then connects in with a Christian church. And within two weeks, alongside her grief and her pain, she makes a decision to follow Jesus as her Lord and her Saviour. That sense of blessing coming out of pain. What about here? What was going on? Well, the Gibeonites, well, they'd expected to then, having conned Joshua and the leaders into that binding agreement, they'd expected to then live in freedom. But unfortunately, they ended up being cursed and being given the most menial tasks in the country. You see, it wasn't long before their lies came to light. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 19 says this. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Words of truth are consistent and they stand all tests, while lies are soon discovered and very quickly exposed for what they are. We know that to be true. But it's not the end of the story for the Gibeonites that deserve to be punished for their own wrongdoing, their own lies, their own sinfulness. A curse or a mistake or a failure is never the end. Not in God's eyes. Not if we allow that that kind of glimmer of the potential or possibility for there to be hope which is what there always is before God. You see, because Gibeon, Gibeon, as one of their tasks that they were given, was to then serve in the temple of the Lord, they then were hearing the message of the truth of God's word. Shall I tell you what happened as a result of that? They were then kept from idolatry. They were then kept from the repetition of evil that had gone before. It paved the way for them to be able to find salvation. Eventually, the Gibeonites were absorbed into Israel as being able to be a part of God's people. From outside, they were then on the inside. What started as a curse became something that was turned into a blessing by God. It's quite incredible, isn't it? That story of grace. They'd done wrong. They conned God's leaders. God's leaders have made a mistake, but they then lashed out, thinking, well, we can't change this vow. 
But actually, because you lied, you're going to be punished and you're going to be the lowest of the low. And one of the things that you're going to do, you're going to get involved in all the the stuff that nobody else wants to do in church. Nightmare for a lifetime. But bit by bit, over the course of time, over the course of years, these people, despite this being as a result of their punishment, heard a message of hope that they then believed and became God's people. Do you need me to apply that? I'm going to, whether you want me to any way or not. Today, God can still overrule our mistakes and our failures and then turn them into a blessing. If we will seek his forgiveness and seek to put things right, he can then turn tragedy into triumph. It doesn't mean to say that we have every right to go out and choose to do wrong or do dumb things or to justify making wrong decisions. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does give us hope for when we may well make a bad decision or when we believe we have failed in an area of our lives. I talk to a lot of people every single week that are convinced that that is still true of them. And many of these people have been Christians for years but still not fully grasped the power of the gospel which is whatever we then dump In God's hands, whatever we give to this amazing Jesus, this risen Jesus, he grabs hold of and casts it away. That's what he died for, to be punished for all that rubbish, including our failures, yours and mine. If we're still holding on to those failures, we've not fully grasped the amazing wonder of God's grace. Jesus died to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Is the song that we sing based on Jesus' words himself. If you've made a bad decision, all is not lost at all. If you made a pretty dumb decision this week or recently, you walked in here this morning, you haven't really got any idea why. Well, maybe it's because God has been on your case. Not to actually hit you over the head with, yes, you did wrong and, and bring that into focus, but rather to encourage you to take that wrong To this person called Jesus who said, I died for you. I died for that wrongdoing. Would you give that to me? Would you ask me to forgive you? I gave my life so that you might live. But this Jesus didn't stay dead. He then rose again victorious. That's why there's power over wrongdoing, power over death even. That each and every one of us have got there for that opportunity for new life. And a fresh start with him. Can I encourage you as we have a time of quiet shortly to turn it over, whatever it is, to God to allow him to help you with this situation. If you're a Christian already but you've blown it in an area, dump all that with God. Claim afresh his forgiveness. If maybe this is the first time for you, do confess in the quietness of your own heart your wrongdoing before this holy God. You may need to make restitution to put something right with an individual, but no that your sin, God says this, if you confess your sin, then God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin. Will. Will, 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 will. That's the guarantee of the word of God. When you do that, God is able to overrule and make a blessing out of it. In case you're wondering how to do that in the form of a prayer, very often we use an ABC. A is there's something that we need to admit. We need to admit whatever it is that we've blown out on. 
The B is there's something to believe, and I've already outlined it, in terms of what Jesus has done for us. Believe that which he has done for you. To take all of your failures, all of your pain, all of that wrong decision making. And the C is the word commit. To commit your life to the one who gave his life to you. I'd encourage you to do that. Let's pray. God, you know all about me. Other people may well not know all there is to know, but you know. Because you look on the heart, your word says. And when we think of the state of our own heart and those decisions that we've made, our wrongdoing, but also our thoughts, our motives, we find ourselves staring down at the ground. It's uncomfortable. We confess that kind of stuff. Whatever our own mouldy old dough may well be, we confess that to you. God, we thank you that you provided a way that all of that stuff could be dealt with. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to pay the price as punishment for my wrongdoing. Forgive me. Please give me this fresh start. Come into my life. Help me to know how I might follow you. Because I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.